I like to be remembered as someone who did what they said they would do. And I hope that that involves having put people first. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JBM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high-growth startups and scale-ups. 40 Minute Mentor was born out of a mission to make mentorship more accessible to everyone. And I feel so lucky to have had the chance to speak to over 100 amazing leaders over the last three years. We've had so much lovely feedback since we started the podcast and one group of listeners that we often hear from are early stage founders or aspiring entrepreneurs. In fact, some of our listeners have been so inspired by our 40 Minute Mentor guest that they have taken the plunge and started their own business. It blew my mind when I read those messages and I'm really hoping that there'll be many more people that are inspired into action from hearing the podcast over the years ahead. As a solo founder myself, I've been able to learn tons from guests and I really wish I'd have had a similar resource 10 years ago when I started JBM, as I think it would have helped me avoid many of the mistakes that I and many other founders make when you're starting out. With this in mind, we thought you might appreciate a feature series focused on early stage founders, where we dig into some of the challenges of starting a business and hear some great advice from some high quality entrepreneurs. For the first episode, we're thrilled to be joined by friend of JBM, Freddie Ford, the founder of Patch, the commuter co-working clubs for the work near home era. I've had the great pleasure of knowing and working with Freddie for a number of years. He is super smart, so down to earth, and someone who is building a truly amazing company that commuter towns up and down the country really need. In today's episode, Freddie shares his career story and tells us why he started Patch and how they're completely revolutionizing their category. He also talks us through his thoughts on what the future of work might actually look like and tons of advice for aspiring or fellow early stage founders. So make sure you have a notebook at the ready. There's lots of great advice in this episode that I'm sure you're going to want to remember. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special early stage founder episode of the 40 Minute Mentor with the brilliant Freddie Ford. Welcome, Freddie, to 40 Minute Mentor. It is a real pleasure to have you here. We've known each other for a while and have been talking about getting you on the pod for a bit. So I'm so glad you're here. And I know you've been particularly busy, so I can't wait to hear all about Patch and your story. But before we, we jump into that, we need to do our quick fire questions. So are you ready? Yeah, quite nervous after the intro, but ready, ready as ever. <laughs> My first job was... Pulling pints for some very unhappy bankers. Um, it was 2007, 8, and if I ever needed a reason not to go into finance, their drinking habits was pretty good. Really. <laughs> yeah, bleak times. I remember that well. I, I think I was pulling pints at similar times. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely enough to put you off all things to do with finance. The biggest mistake I ever made was. So, I'm very optimistic by nature. <laughs> so, I make mistakes all the time but I tend not to remember them <laughs> because I, I started thinking, I, I sort of rather think about, okay, well, what's the opportunity that's been created by the fact that this thing has happened? I'd say maybe not developing a habit of reading earlier on. Like I really avoided books for a long time for no particular reason. And I think particularly that might've led me to read more outside of my comfort zone earlier on. And then that in turn may have helped me to sort of challenge preconceived ideas earlier on i also see people who just have such a voracious appetite for reading and it's really impressive and i just don't think i ever really built that much i mean i do read but just yeah nowhere near enough 
I'm the same, actually. I love reading, but I kind of resent reading all the aspirational books mm. that I should be reading because I tend to associate reading with sitting on a beach, reading a novel, getting lost in it. But I tend to now do audiobooks. That's interesting, mate. Before I started my business, I wish I knew. I wish I knew a lot more about all of the intricacies of uh, round documentation. So that's the kind of legal minutiae related to raising money into a business. There are a lot of different avenues, a lot of different options, a lot of different questions. I mean, there's got to be at least 30 or 40 major ones. And the permutations of turning left here or turning right there. I used to love role-playing games when I was growing up. I used to do a lot of like point-and-click games in the 90s. Um, <laughs> it's not just understanding the technical detail, but it's then also understanding what that does or doesn't like to do in the future. And then you also need to have good governance around it. And, and, and because you're trying to move really, really quickly, I think... It's hard to take the patience to invest the time into working these things through, but that fundamentally is so important. So I, you know, I have slowed down and, and got frustrated at times working through these items. I think had I known all those things in advance, I just might have saved a lot of time and frustration, actually. Yeah, anything legal, anything that slows you down, I, I find frustrating. It's also very coded and the information is retained, is held by a few people. I think there's probably a lot of people who end up with bad implications and you know the advice is expensive so it feels like a sort of i'm glad that the law exists i understand why these protections are in place but breaking it down and accessing it and understanding it is just very complicated and i think probably prevents a lot of good things from happening yeah definitely no, that's a really interesting point the hardest part of the founder is yeah so i'd say two things if i can cheat uh, the first is not being able to do everything you want as quickly as you want to do it as I'm sure we'll get into, and as I'm sure is what I know is consistent amongst all of the other founders in your podcast, which I listen to, the path for, in my head for what we could build and the impact that we could have is unbelievably clear and unbelievably large. There's just so many things that we could do. I'm excited about all of them. I want to do all of them, but I can't. And so having that patience and patience, and then I guess being able to communicate that to all various stakeholders, you know, yes, that's a great idea. Thank you. But we can't do it. Sounds like we're shutting things down, whereas we're sort of opening things up. So, so learning to be patient and, and knowing that you'll get there over time. And the second, very, very different, is the uninvited risk and pressure of puts more people around you. So my family, my wife, et cetera, none of them chose for me to do this. And yet they're kind of bought in, whether they like it or not. And of course, everyone's excited about the upside and the positivity. And isn't it great that I'm doing my own thing and blah, blah, blah. And they want to support me and help me and so on. And that's great, but you know, there is also the downside, right? They don't buy into. If I win, if Patch wins, whatever the definition that is, if we succeed in some way, then it's, you know, hopefully it's kind of good for everyone and everyone feels good about it. But if that doesn't happen, or even if it does happen, the, the difficult steps on the journey, who's picking up the pieces? You know, it's that same group and they don't get to buy into that. I mean, I guess it's like an extreme version of friendship, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But you, I, I, you're sort of signing people around you up to a lot. And, and so that, I think about that a lot. It really resonates with me, actually. I totally on that. I think anyone that's married to or lives with a founder will be going on that emotional rollercoaster with them, you know, cheering every second, kind of being misquired when required. And they're often, you know, not spoken about enough about the important, the important role they, they play. Co-founder is not the right word for my wife, but there is a very important support role that she plays and that I am constantly trying to figure out how to sort of platforming she's a much more private person than i am but you know she and others around me are responsible for helping get patch off the ground and i think particularly in my case as a solo founder there's a bit of i think we've founded them in general there's a bit of kind of myth 
And I just think mm. it's just not true. Like, and you know, it's not the failure really, but whatever success there may be or whatever good news or good story, like it's not me. It's like I'm sort of a collection of all of the people around me, friends, family. I kind of just feel like a sort of vessel representing, I hope, the best or trying to represent the best of that support. So, yeah, I mean, we I love that. There's a lot of commentary about unrewarded, you know, unpaid labor. And, and I guess yeah, that was a big, big part. And I don't know, even if I need to, but there's definitely a, a share of the respect and, uh, that absolutely cannot be taken away from those people. Totally. And finally, Freddie, can you share something from your CV? It could be a failure or a setback that we wouldn't know about that you've mm. learned a lot from. How long have you got? Um, <laughs> I think that a lot of things haven't worked out. What is the role of a CV? It's, it's a marketing document for somebody who's, who's trying to find a job. So, and, and effectively, that's what LinkedIn as well, right? It's, it's, it's the kind of, I used to sort of say to my wife, you know, maybe you shouldn't be spending so much time scrolling through Instagram, to which she responded. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't spend so much time scrolling through LinkedIn. I thought, <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's like, what's the like untrue version of yourself that you just want the world to see for whatever reason? The reality is life's much more complicated than actually there's been so much failure in my like professional career. Like, a lot of jobs didn't work out. They weren't scoped. I failed. The company failed. Like you could just as eat like, of course, the narrative here and the sort of hype machine has to be, you know, founders have these incredible backgrounds and they're always winning. And oh my God, they had this job and that job and then the other. And just in my case, it's absolutely not true. So th- th- there's a lot of stuff I've learned, a lot of success for sure. But like you could just as easily tell the narrative the other way. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not I'm not fussed about it. Like I'm mm. frankly happy about it because I think it's from those difficult experiences that we learn. Um, and been, there has been a lot of difficult. Moments. Yeah, I think it's really important to embrace those failures and, and learn from them and talk about them because uh, you know we we all go through them and it's kind of part and parcel of being a founder and mm. entrepreneur. And it's really how you react to them. I think that kind of sets you apart. And, and some of the best founders are so many years. And <laughs> it's a common theme on this podcast, but one we want to keep talking about. Um, thank you, Freddie. Uh, well, we already feel like, I'm sure our listeners feel like they, they have a very good sense of the type of optimistic founder you are. But before we dive into founder life in a bit more detail and talk about Pat, can you give our listeners that don't know you just a bit of an overview of your CV to date and, and, and what ultimately inspired you to become a founder? So like others, I started out in consulting. I worked in a whole lot of early stage companies. I think I think the, the itch was actually that university i mean i was i experienced life in quite a vivid way which is the only way i could put it and, and university was quite overwhelming for me in a good way in that it was freedom and space to just do what i wanted to do i love solving problems spent a lot of time creating experiences running events and so on that tangible like impact on an experience watching someone like be happy was just it was great <laughs> and a friend introduced me to technology and all of a sudden i realized i feel the play which is so so much bigger and actually, the unlimited potential of the internet and technology just meant that then there's just this sort of million X size of uh, field of play, which is stuff that you can do once people don't have to be physically in the same place and they can communicate uh, in different ways. And then in, I guess in consulting, I learned how to do stuff that wasn't particularly sort of philosophical, but sort of taught me very practical ways of solving problems. It also taught me a lot about resilience. I can remember going home late one evening late in this context like 7 30 in my first few weeks and i thought better better take time off the next morning to compensate that and i sort of swanned in at like 10 10 30 a.m and kind of struck me that well, maybe that's just not normal maybe yeah. <laughs> i'd actually been working as student union president for a year and uh, very different sector <laughs> and, and actually i just realized that you know no one's going to build your own future for you got to build it yourself and, and i spent some time entrepreneur first i spent some time in, in other startups both here and abroad and uh, san francisco and in hong kong and 
I guess the theme, if there is one, is it's just constantly looking for new and exciting challenges to solve and, and actually seeking out risk. <laughs> so I've always joined, since I left consulting, I've always joined early stage companies because whenever I saw something sort of even moderately successful or a household name, I thought it was kind of too late. I thought the harder lesson is that the more difficult sort of intellectual problems were going to be at earlier stage. Love that. And uh, you touched upon the kind of consulting and being an operator in startups, obviously the time at EF, which I know was was formative. What do you think are some of the most important skills that you picked up along the way in that early part of the career that sort of set you up for success as a founder? And on the flip side to that, uh, would you say that uh, are there particular bits that you found sort of harder to adjust from going working in companies to running a company? So in management consulting, yeah, I learned a lot of generalist problem-solving skills, but I learned nothing about or very little about risk. So I came out of that resilient and kind of sort of hands-on capable, but everything had to be in a process and sometimes that is inappropriate. So I had to kind of unlearn a lot of the longer form problem solving and, and, and actually accelerate. If you, if you sort of go back to where consulting problem solving styles come from, my understanding is that it basically comes from engineering. So similar kind of agile process, it's just a slightly longer. So just getting much, much faster and finding the right point uh, on the tension between doing things really, really well and then doing them fast. And there is a happy middle there somewhere. And I learned a lot from hanging around engineers and product people, basically, who were just much more practical about breaking problems down into really small things, testing them, being willing to fail, throwing things out the window, moving on. And actually, they, at least in my experience, they figured out what the answer was by butting the wall constantly. And then only when it stopped not working, did you realize you got the answer. And I think marrying that with some of the more conceptual, bigger sort of strategic concepts that, that I got taught in consulting was um, was kind of, to me, like a bit, a bit of a special mix. But as I said, it was hard and there were a lot of failures along the way because I had to go way out of my comfort zone and sort of drop in with all of these sort of supposedly helpful skill sets and supposedly great start to my career, but then in a totally unfamiliar environment where mm-hmm. the language was different and the expectations were different, the type of people I was working with was different. So it took, it took a period of adjustment, but ultimately I think helps to create a mindset which is um, more distinct to the result uh, as a sort of combination of uh, of very different ways of thinking. That's great. I feel like we've been teasing uh, by little references to Pat, but I think uh, for anyone that hasn't heard of it, let's get on to that. Can you share your elevator pitch with us and tell our audience a little bit about where the idea for Patch came from? Sure. I look, I think this is very simple. We, at Patch, we, we basically just believe people are great. <laughs> uh, we, we believe that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And I mean everywhere in a physical sense, like talent, like great people exist in all of the towns around the country and villages that, that most people have never heard of. And our job is to operate co-working and cultural venues for communities on those high streets as a front door to opportunity. So you can walk into a patch and you can take part in coding course. You can take part in a hobbyist activity. You can go to a calligraphy class. You can go to a crochet group. You can attend a business networking event. You can hang out with other parents, perhaps. Whatever it is that you want to do with your time, wherever it is you want to convene with your community, wherever you want opportunity to engage in an activity, patch should be that place. The anchor of this is co-working, which predominantly happens upstairs. But it's very important to us that the gateway into that world is an accessible environment uh, on the high street. And so you end up with this, what we call the work near home category that we're building, which is, yes, a place where you can do work, which at the moment in our, in, in our first location is 
predominantly knowledge-based, sort of desk-based working, knowledge-based working. But actually, I think there are many, many forms of work that we don't yet cater for that we'd like to. So we think sort of food and, and, and cooking is kind of one theme. Manufacturing is another. And really what we want to end up with is this sort of festival of activity, a place on the high street that both solves for this sense of community gathering and loneliness and solving for the way in which our high streets have been really made very difficult places. I mean, there isn't really anywhere so much to go anymore. We don't have those sort of places of gatherings as we did before. And then from there, you can have this kind of very connected relationship with, with the world of work as well. So if you're working there, you're bringing your wallet and you're spending on the high street and you're enabling a local economy. But if you're going there for a, some sort of cultural or, or, or local hobbyist activity, then what you're doing is convening with your, with your local neighborhood. And so you could have part to play in one or both of those uh, activities. Um, but if we, if we do our job well, I think we'll see the repopulation and the re, I guess, energizing of uh, a lot of places that have become a little bit dormant and a little bit unpersonal. Um, and that's why I bring it back to what I said at the beginning, which is that we believe people are great and we're just giving them an opportunity to exhibit that. Love it. Absolutely love it. Ever since I first heard about what you're building, I just find it so inspiring. And, and that people first approach is just, it really resonates with me. And I'm sure lots of our, our listeners, it's not been without its challenges because you started patch in the middle of a global pandemic. So yeah. I mean, even more impressive what you've achieved. Other than the obvious in COVID, what, what have been some of the, the most significant challenges you faced in the early days and, and how have you overcome those? So starting a business within a global pandemic sounds very hard on the outside, but I don't approach this in a fundamentally different way from how I approach challenges that we face, big or small, which is that I guess every cloud is a silver lining. And aside all of the tragedy, aside all of the awfulness, uh, the human cost, the economic cost, you know, life goes on and we have to find a way of believing in, in you know, a future after these events. And for us, that future was about acknowledging the devastation, particularly to the high street and to communities, but then actually asking, what have we learned that we can take away from this? What, what do we want to take into the future? And the thing that really jumped out to me during COVID was that feeling that we all had that people were coming together, whether it's clapping for the NHS on, on a Thursday or people offering to do shopping for each other and you know shops converting themselves into kind of grocery stores. It really felt like everyone pulled together. And that was this thing that I wanted to take away and, and thought that with Pat, we might be able to try to make that a more permanent feature of our daily lives. The reality is that the effects on high streets have been devastating. And I would be on the side to argue that it accelerated the pre-existing trend. Now, what this means, I think, is a much greater need for passion than before. We've got more empty high street. I mean, so I mean, this I think is predates the pandemic, but I think it's on the same theme. Debenhams, House of Fraser. There are lots of you know BHS, Topman. There are lots and lots of large retailers who are struggling, and, and many more who, who come under pressure as a result of the pandemic. So I'd say the need for patch and the opportunity that, that by which I mean the actual spaces to occupy is growing and has grown a lot. So, you know, I, I see these challenges. You know, we were very early stage. We're very lucky in, in the sense in that we didn't really have a lot to lose. You know, we, I literally started out in March 2020 um, and partly spurred on by it. So in a way, I had this runway of the whole world was frozen for nine months, which allowed me in a way to, to double down and figure out how we could build something that, that would try to, to build a, a, better, a better future on the other side of it. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. I mean, with what you're doing, you're you're effectively creating a new category and very much reframing what good work looks like in a way that I think is just so 
important and beneficial, particularly for the local economies. Can you tell us a bit more about how you're positioning Patch sort of going forward mm. and what the next phase of growth looks like for you? So formally, our mission is to create opportunity for people, work and communities on every UK high street. You ask how we're positioning ourselves and the key words there are opportunity, people and every. So there are lots of ways that we can achieve those things. The way that we are focusing on doing that now is by creating a physical place of convention. But I think a lot of those things can be enhanced by providing spaces that aren't physical. So the core insight, I suppose, or or a couple of the core insights at the heart of Patch are one, that people are craving senses of community. And that's not a a, a Patch-led insight. I think we've all seen the rise of communities over the last few years. But I think for Patch, it's within the context of a community of people who are physically located near to where you live. And I guess one of the other insights to Patch is that you should be effectively provided opportunity based on who you are and not where you live. And so that second one can be in slight tension, the first one. So we have several thousand people who signed up on our website saying, I would like a patch in X town. In fact, we've got about 300 different towns around the country, including there are some viral pockets of patch in places like Kendall and Cumbria, where they really, apparently <laughs> really, really want a patch. Wow. Now, I would like us to be on in 300 locations around the country. That's going to take time. So how can we provide opportunity for people based on who they are and not where they live? before we've actually managed to bring physical location to them. And so I think what we're really excited about is this sort of distributed network of networks. If there are, what, eight or so million people who live in London, well, then there are 60 or million who don't live in London. Okay, well, if you expand that to all cities, major cities, you'd be amazed actually at how long and big the tail is. There are more people who live in towns of forty to 200,000 people than there are in any other size. So mm. you add up all the cities above that, and, and you won't have heard of most towns in that category. And so if we can create a world where those people are able to connect, engage, transact, communicate, support each other, etc., all around the idea that they are really great in whatever it is, their personal ambition, their, their work, whatever it might be, but they don't have the physical conglomeration of a place like London, can we create a place online that allows them to exhibit that opportunity? Last all the while, yes, getting to a point where where we can also provide them a physical space as well. Really interesting. For the last few years, one of the most common phrases has been the future amongst you know our clients in the broader ecosystem. And you, you know, you're very much at the forefront of this, this evolution of how we're thinking about you know where we work and how we work and community. All these really important things. What mm. are the changes that you are seeing coming down the line, and how can any employers listening to this ensure they're setting their teams up for success when it's a new ways of working? Just you know, looking mm. forward with a different lens. So there's maybe two things I'll say about this. First of all, I've had the pleasure, James, of meeting you in person, and I'm pretty sure we wear a different size T-shirt. Which I think is probably true of most people, right? If we all had tailored yes. t-shirts, we all be wearing totally different size clothes. So I guess my point is that everyone is different. Everyone is individual. Everyone has different preferences. Everyone has different ways of, of living their lives. And I think it's so that's true with, with, with people and jobs. The most frustrating part of the future work debate or discussion in the last few years has been this sort of very kind of, well, yeah, I should say quite sort of paternalistic, quite shouty idea that person A or person B has to have the answer, as if there is one answer. But in the same way that, you know, not all t-shirts are made of the same size, so not all lives and preferences are, are, are made of the same size. 
you know, one of our values in the company is balance, uh, by which we mean how can we help people provide balance in their physical health and mental health, where they, you know, balance their communities and so on. And I like really look forward to the world where we can actually mold work and life to be a balance and work around, you know, custom. We've got so custom everything, but we still all seem to think that going into the office together, the same place at the same time, nine to five, whatever it is in the year of laptops makes sense, which it really, really doesn't. So that's my first observation is that we will move into many, many more flexible different types of work. And what works for one company and one individual may be different than the next. And the second the thing I'm kind of most excited about, given that this is all a business, this business is all about people, is how we are going to witness, I think, a fundamental shift in control and in power away from employers towards employees. And I think that's only a good thing. And there's a sort of <laughs> longer kind of Piketty-esque, you know, capital versus labor discussion possibly for another time. But I think it's fundamentally a good thing that employees, labor, uh, it gets more say in how they manage their lives because it's fundamentally what we want them first to do otherwise. I mean, I, I don't feel like I was put on the surf to increase the GDP of the UK or whatever the metrics is or to, to, to nudge up with the 100 or whatever. Like, I feel like I'm, I think we're all in this world basically to sort of reproduce and try and be happy along the way. So if we can sort of nudge things in that direction, I think that's great. And I think this will this will move the needle. And 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 particularly for, and again, thinking about what we're trying to do at Pirates, I think particularly for maybe groups who, who haven't always been in control of, of, of what that mm-hmm. what the answer to that is. And you know, parents being one small example, and um, those with access needs, those who aren't centered in the place of economic opportunity, which again, you know, is a subset and subset and so on. Yeah, so true. And who would have thought it a few years ago that there'd be a people trialing four-day weeks and who would have thought that you could have fully remote companies and you know that a unicorn fully remote I mean there's just it, it things are just evolving such and, and I guess we, we do perhaps have COVID to help for that in some ways. So as you say there are silver linings to these these awful things and it's amazing to see companies like Pat kind of at the forefront of, of this change. We've got to talk a little bit about funding and money because that's that's all part of the startup game. You've raised an amazing $1.1 million seed round with some incredible investors. Your former boss from Entrepreneur First, Matt Clifford, Camilla Dolan from Eco Ventures, who we've done some work with over the years, and Zoe Javier Hewitt from Sequoia, who's a, a mutual friend, a previous 40-minute mentor, amongst a host of you know hugely impressive and very well-respected angels and, and others. So tell us a little bit about how the fundraising experience has been and any lessons that you've learned that other founders listening to this going through that process might be able to take with them there's maybe two things i can say about that so the first is you know you're right that the profile let's say of some of the people who have invested in patch is there (laughs) like there is a presence to those profiles but i also think that is not success what matters to me about the, the people on the cap table is these are people who really really care about patch and our values and what we're trying to achieve and, and frankly the social aims that are a big part of what we're doing and you fundamentally care about and believe in and support me and you mentioned camilla dolan from eka she was the first person to offer me money and she actually did that whilst helping me review a pitch document where i was going to ask someone else for money and i hadn't even crossed my mind to ask her because i thought she's a friend she's a mentor she's someone who's helped me through various things and at the end of the course gotta go gotta go but please 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 can i like will you accept a tiny check for me and that remains one of the probably the top three moments, you know, Amazing. hiring, turning profitable, opening the site, but that somebody would offer their confidence to me like that meant everything. And, you know, she's one of the smaller contributors amongst, you know, especially as we're raising more money at the moment. But that is what matters about those people, not the names, mm. not the headlines, not the this person did this, 
I worked really, really, really hard to build a table of investors that was both diverse in its outset, outset its mindset, its background, what the skills and uh, technical knowledge that, that they could provide me. And, and, and I have leaned very, very heavily on that. But also fundamentally people that gave me energy, that gave me power, that gave me confidence, mm. uh, you know, especially as a, as, a, as a sole founder. They are effectively my, my, one of my yeah. other founders in a way collectively between them. And then the second part, maybe very quickly, is really be thoughtful about who your investors are. Ultimately, there are various ways you can exert control and ignore them, et cetera, if you want to. Every single investor, without exception, has helped me very specifically, technically, in some area. And so I mapped out a grid before I raised. I need property experience. I need retail experience. I need operating experience. I need experience with hiring, with operating and running small companies and scaling, et cetera, et cetera. And as I built that grid out, I made sure to match all of those items. I mean, you mentioned Zoe, another amazing person who who actually was one of the inspirations behind building Patch years ago when we were working EF together. She said, one day, I think we're going to build a talent institution. And that, and that stayed in my head. So there was nothing more exciting for me to then bring her in than and she now has advised me as an observer on our board and, and so on. So yeah, just think very carefully about the composition and, and you know, these people you want to work with. So Think about how they can work for you and, and how that could be a, a, a positive relationship. But, but ultimately, it is also an investment. So you they understand that. Treat them with respect. Totally. As a solo founder myself, I think you know we have effectively six board advisors, all different types of experiences, and they are like a, a you know a, a second founder to me. You know, somebody I can lean on and people to hold me to account and ask the difficult questions when required. And it, it really is one of the most important things I've done. And when I saw how doing it and how deliberate you were, I just, you know, it's just a very smart move. And I think any founder listening to this that's going on that journey, if you can create people around you, it will make the journey easier. Freddie, we get lots of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen to 40 Minute Mentor that are really looking to learn from successful founders like yourself. So what advice do you wish you were given before you started Patch? And is there one particular piece of advice that you like to remind yourself of every day? Yeah, I think it can be very uh, tempting to look for the answers from other people to imagine somehow that there is a sort of pyramid of truth and every day you're adding this block into it and one day you'll reach the summit and you'll join this kind of crowd of other people up there who figured out the answers and that it's kind of this single line of, of narrative. And it's just not true. And, and I don't know if anyone has really told me this or I've just learned through my own experience, but you really just have to build your own answers and build your own version of the truth. And so I suppose my, my advice is not to fake your own confidence, but to be honest with yourself and develop your own point of view, develop your own confidence. If I think back to my experience on the first, I was trying to start a company and that almost felt like the, felt like the outcome rather than actually having a sort of natural place, uh, a natural desire to want to solve a problem or, or be in a particular place. It felt like achieving my own kind of I don't know, LinkedIn status as a founder was the goal. I would never would have said that at the time. And ultimately, I failed to build a business on, on the EF program, not through any fault of EF entirely, because I think I lacked both conviction in the idea and confidence in myself. And, you know, at 26, 27, whatever I was, I would have told you, perhaps even presented that I, as the most confident person you might have met. But ultimately, you can't force it. You have to just allow the right thing to happen in the right place at the right time. And no matter how hard you push it or how hard you try to want it to be true, it either is or, or it isn't, which I think is a long way of saying that it's okay. Like it's okay if you're not sort of winning against peers. You know, I 
had a lot, and I'm sure other people have too, have had a lot of anxiety around performance against my peer group and sometime around turning 30, buying a flat, getting married. I, I, I sort of try to stop caring about what other people think. So surround yourself by good people, listen. And, and if that were to be my one piece of advice, I suppose that would be listening. That is a, something a new mentor of mine has been saying a lot. Crowdsource feedback on you, what you care about, and build your own answers, build your own version of the truth. When the time is right, you'll know. Don't force it. And, and certainly don't overthink how other people may perceive you. Because frankly, it's your life, not theirs. And frankly, other people just do not care as much as you do. It's really great advice, Freddie. And I suffer from this as well. I think I'm worried about what other people think at times. I'm trying to be the best possible mm. founder and run the best possible business. And sometimes that actually just gets in the way and slows you down from actually just doing you. And I think that's, I, I, I often have to remind myself of that. I'm sure a lot of people listening will be uh, nodding along in agreement. But I think there is sometimes this unhelpful, mythical status of, you know, capital founder. And, and it's not just within startups, within any, any industry. You know, you might be in an industry where partner is this magical word or, or whatever. And I think ultimately it is, it is a job. And we as individuals can all put so much pressure on ourselves to outcompete others. On the confidence piece, Freddie, you mentioned there that outwardly you were, you know, incredibly confident. And I know a lot of people like that. I, I, I was the same, you know, really extroverted, you know, and I think a lot of people would say that I was one of the more confident people in my friendship group. But actually, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. You know, I, I there's a lot of self-doubt, a lot of imposter syndrome for me. You know, actually, I realized in the earlier part of my career when I worked in a corporate company, I was pr pretty down in the dumps, albeit externally not showing that because, you know, I was being very stiff up a little mm. about it. And I think that was because I hadn't really found my purpose mm. or what I really, really was passionate about doing. So how did you go from being that externally confident individual, but actually perhaps not to being the person that is secure in your skin now? Like what were there particular defining points in that journey that helped you gain that confidence? I think it's partly trial and error. It's partly, well, certainly recognizing there are things external to my career and my personal life that just are and always will be more important. And I draw a lot of energy, particularly from the relationship I have with my wife and others around me. And actually I do sometimes ask myself, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? And that, you know, anyone in any context will be asking themselves that. And, you know, I think I find my answers there and that I find very energizing, very motivating. And then it's partly just about being able, certainly for me, to be able to step back and almost existentially remove myself from any one situation, be it you know, an immediate question that might be stressful on a particular day or perhaps a longer three, six, 12 month question about my career. And just step back and observe myself from the outside and say, look at this person and what they're doing. Try and understand what they're going through, why they're going through it. Uh, and one thought exercise would be, what advice would I give this person were I that person's friend? So not to get too conceptual about it, but I think try to remove yourself if you can, or, or to step aside and take a, an external observational view on what you're going through. And I think, you know, I used to think of my life as a, as a timeline. Maybe it's because I studied history. So you think about those kind of timeline maps you see on the wall at school. And you'd see all these sort of, extremely intense events that have happened, let's say, in the 20th century, at the most recent point of the timeline over on the right-hand side, two world wars and, and everything else that, that's kind of happened and, you know, more recently. And then you kind of look along that timeline that stretches back across the school wall, maybe a few metres long, and you realise that, 
wow, a lot of other stuff has happened. <laughs> and then you imagine so what's, true. Not, what's not on that timeline, you know, in, in other countries, you know, let's say it's the timeline of British history, and then you realize that there's kind of pre-recorded history and so on and so on. And if I think about my life in the same way, no matter how intense or difficult or strange or stressful a, a day or a week or a month or a year might be, there's a lot of variety of life. There's a lot of time to go. There's a lot of different things. And I think, as I said, you know, thinking about life as this kind of single linear race is a very unproductive frame. And I think thinking about it as a relationship of things in a sort of more 3D environment where what matters, what's important is kind of always and ever changing in the kind of almost sort of, if you will, a sphere, you know, where things are moving around in orbit rather than a straight line where you've got to get to the end of it. I mean, these are just a few sort of disconnected techniques that, that I've used. I think the theme is to stop kind of drilling into my own sense of needing to be successful against other people and, and, and just trying to relax and remember that there, that there are many, many other important things or other ways of measuring or even not even measuring, but just actually enjoying enjoying my life yeah. and caring about what matters. God, and it's so important to enjoy life. There's so many times where I get really heads and up. It's, and it's, it's almost disappointing, right? It's almost sad that we yeah. have to say that. I mean, I agree. It's so disappointing. I mean, yeah. you know, my, my brother, interestingly, is one of the most relaxed people I know. And people say often that when they meet us, they can't believe that we're related. And he looks <laughs> at the way, you know, he would hear a comment like that and be like, well, what kind of world are you in that you have to say that? But again, I think we have to be honest. We have to be open, right? Hopefully someone might listen and say, oh, I also feel stressful like I overanalyze and it's okay it's fine like I think a lot of us are made up in that way and it comes with significant advantages but we should accept that sometimes it's just you know too much you know and I just think I'm really happy that it feels like that you know Tom Bonfell would be another one like it feels like we are moving into a society now where we can just be more accepting that, that life is complicated and rather than kind of be on this constant sort of as I say, it's sort of status game. Uh, yes, and to I agree. There, there, there's winning, you know, there's winning, winning in lots of different forms. Yeah, and I think it's also about knowing your triggers a bit when you are falling into that spiral or you're yeah. caught in that vortex of anxiety, which is very easy to do in founder life. There's a lot of stress. And, you, you know, there is a lot of external pressure as well as the internal pressure you put on yourself because everybody wants to succeed and feel it. I can there are physical manifestations for me when I'm just overthinking a lot of things. I start mm. to breathe deeper and kind of, mm. and I think I now know I need to get outside. I need to go for a walk. <laughs> I need to see my daughter and wife and like just do something mind-numbingly just different. That could be watching TV. It could be chucking a ball around. But I just need to take myself away from that headspace and then just come back to it with a fresh lens. And I think it's taken me a, lo- a long time. So I actually realize mm. it's as simple as that that can slightly just reframe things for myself. And I think we're just all a bit harsh on ourselves and I think we've got to have the answer all the time. And sometimes it is as simple as speaking to the right person or getting a change of scenery. And it won't solve all the problems, but I think it's just helpful to, because otherwise you just keep getting caught in that negative spiral, which you know I've done many times. I think, I guess we're alluding to the fact that the founder journey is tough, and, but it's also so rewarding and, and wonderful. And I kind of often get really annoyed because there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of myths out there about that, alongside all the, you know, the hustle stuff. What about the reality? And I guess the reality of found life is part of what we wanted to show on this podcast is, is, is the good, the bad, the learnings, mm. the lessons. What for you are the, the biggest myths that you hear now that you are a founder yourself mm. and you've been on this journey? What are the biggest myths that you'd like to bust? And also now you've done it, 
and you can reflect back what have been the most important skills that you've either built or, or had in your arsenal mm. that are making founder life easier? I think the biggest surprise to me, and this, this totally reveals my own sense of what, what, what I used to think was important, you know, which I think we've talked about. So, you know, it's no longer fortunately surprised me now is just how wide a variety of skill sets and types of people that it's possible to create great companies. And I think, again, there is this kind of conceit, which I think comes in some parts of professional services where I started my career. And that suggests that you have to represent a certain type of structured problem solving, numerical thinking, what the quote unquote sort of smart money people uh, approach they would take. And it is, I'm so happy that that is just not true. The common thread that, that I have seen be successful amongst founders is a real passion, grit, resilience, call it what you want, to ultimately make that thing better, whatever the thing is, whatever the problem is, whatever the custom set is, however you define it. And, you know, it's, it's certainly the thing that has proven, for me at least, the most successful, I guess, resource is not my ability to run a spreadsheet, not my ability to do a go-to-market analysis, not my ability to do any of the things that anyone in professional services would have told me was would be absolutely all and end all. It's the ability to actually really, really care about what I'm building. And that is the thing that has allowed me to attract investment fundamentally. That is the thing that has allowed me to draw on deep and meaningful relationships and advice from other founders because I think we see it in each other. And I would say that community of other founders, and I'm going to shout out in particular both the back community and specifically the landscape, who you know both of them have been great groups of people who've helped me in various environments. And yeah, that passion, that care really is what pulls you through. I know we met before you were setting up Hatch, but it was definitely in your head. It was it was clearly something you were working on in the background. And as part of kind of preparing for that, you did some fractional work. You were a very early adopter of our SOS solution. How did doing that sort of fractional work with found other founders of startups and scale-ups, how did that help you? And what were the biggest learnings from that period of your career? I was very lucky to get exposure to some very impressive other founders and operators. And I think that variety is available in short-term fractional work. It also gave me a lot of space to think differently, think creatively, exposure to different industries. I worked in energy, I worked in retail, I worked for Windows and Doors company. And that really, I guess, uh, exposed me to, to new ways of thinking, new ideas, kept me kind of mobile, intellectually agile. It's also, as I said, you know, it's a great way to give you space and, and time. You know, given the structure of this work, you can do a few weeks on, you can do a few weeks off. It's not for everyone at every time of their career. You know, there's a point where you're focusing in on, you know, if your sort of truth, your sort of north star is to is to build a career within a particular sector, within a particular industry over sort of three, four, five, six years, or whatever your horizon may be. This may not be for you, but as someone who was, I guess, agitated and restless and wanted to start something and felt like I was landing on this conviction around working at home that, that we talked about. The fractional route was really helpful to me for all of those reasons. And, and I would really recommend it. Of course, specifically, I would recommend JVM SOS. Where else would you go? Um, Thank you, Freddie. <laughs> um, and I would say, you know, the same as, as a founder too, you know, there are many different, as an employer, there are many different types of, uh, of people we all need at different type, at different times in, in the journey. And although Generally, we're trying to build a what we call a built-to-last culture, one of our values. There may well be skill sets that, that we need support with on, on a short-term basis. So 
yeah, I think overall, I'm glad that we're moving to a world where people can put their own preferences and skills to best use at best time, rather than forcing a world where you are fixed in your, not only your place of work, which I suppose is the patch thesis, is that not everyone is able to or has to or should work from the same place as everyone else five days a week, but also in the type and style and the format of your work. I think we're only going to see that flexibility increase as the sort of great shuffling between supply and demand of the people and fundamentally what those people also need and want to live sustainable and happy lives. That shuffle continues to play out to the benefit of, of the individual's concern, I think, which is the most important part. Definitely. And for us, it's just been wonderful to see how that new way of doing things, that slightly more flexible approach to hiring for both candidates and clients has, has been really positively received. And I think that is the future. I think it's not for every role and it shouldn't be. It's not for every company. But, you know, at different points in the journey, as you said, you might need some urgent support. That might be a maternity cover, a paternity cover. It might be uh, you're going into a big fundraise and you need some extra brain power or, or somebody with specialist skills. It could be that you don't know what the role is that you're trying to hire, but you know you need something and you need the right sort of person to help shape it. And it's four or five years ago, nobody would, would really entertain that. So it's just wonderful to see that the evolution and, and how try before you buy on both sides of the coin for candidates and clients has become something that just is an obvious thing to do now. And that's been great for JBM, but it's also, I think, been very beneficial for those that have been involved. Finally, Freddie, being a founder is a way of life. You and I both know that. It's not just a, a fancy job title that we stick on LinkedIn. How do you make sure you make time for what's important outside Pat? You referenced your wife earlier. You know, like my wife is a hugely important sounding board, you know, and has been here from day one alongside me. And, you know, in many ways, is that kind of co-founder without the title on LinkedIn. So how do you balance it all? How do you ensure you have, you know, time for your other passions? I think the most important piece of advice I would give anyone and I don't know if this is a founder-specific thing, but maybe that's something I can talk about, is to surround yourself with good people. So that's good people in your personal life. It's good people in your professional life. You know, only work with good investors, only work with good people in your company, you know, only work with good partners, because ultimately they will help you. It doesn't have to be this kind of, you know, great person syndrome. You can listen, which, you know, is the advice that I've been given and I've really appreciated. So I'm not sure I always do the best job of balancing everything, but we have made it a company value. So there are three values, near, balanced, and built for last. And, you know, near is about listening to our customers, built for last is about building intergenerational institution. And balance is about helping people live more sustainable lives. And by putting that at the center of the company, it forces me and and people in the company, you know, remind me that this is important. You know, I have investors telling me to make sure I go on holidays and so on. And I do use my full holiday allocations that I'm quite proud of. (laughs) And, Literally, there is some basics. So for me, it's exercise. So I, I tend to walk an hour each way to work every day, sometimes more. Or if I'm not walking to work, I will walk to the bakery, which happens to be about half an hour in each direction. I like to go running. Uh, I like to go cycling. I really try and keep my weekends free. I think, again, there is this kind of mythical, you have to work all hours every day. It just doesn't make you better. I think being a little bit, well, it's a very, very relative statement of my own age. <laughs> I'm 33. So being a little bit older than I was, obviously, I have, I think, taken some of that pressure off myself that if you work more hours, it's just a function of hours that you work. It's just not true. The quality of your work is entirely guided by the, I guess, stability and, and, and maturity of your kind of overall state of being. 
So I do lots of fun stuff on the weekends. Although I'd say my relationship, my friends is probably the thing that suffered a little bit because I tend to have less time. I can spend all the weekend relaxing. I watch a little sport. So yeah, I think work is work. But the door shuts. I come home and, and I engage. I sit down and have dinner with my wife. Occasionally, usually on the weekends, it's me who does the cooking. Uh, vice versa during the week. And that's where I recharge. That's where I draw my energy. Love it. Yeah. So and my, and my, do- my dog, of course, James. Uh, of course. If I, if, I didn't, if I didn't mention them, the dog, I would. Uh, <laughs> I was no. not a dog person, but we've got a little Jack Russell and it's love. Like it really, really is love. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. You might not be a dog person. You might not care. You might think it's so silly, but whatever. It works for me. No, no. I come no, home. I, he doesn't totally care about my that. day. He wags like crazy. And that's all I need. Great. Perfect distraction from the day and a great way to switch off. No, I totally agree. And I think we are moving past that. Well, I hope we're moving past that idea that we have to work 24-7 because every time I've tried that, I've burnt out and been miserable. Mm. So I just need a constant reminder when that that to-do list seems to be increasing that actually it doesn't really serve a great purpose. To keep working, it's actually just as important to have that time to Mm. recharge. And my mum always used to say, when I was cramming for exams the morning of my GCSEs or whatever, she would always tell me off and say, you must leave room for inspiration. And uh, I think that's really true. Just, you know, if you're working all the time, you never get fresh perspectives. So um, my weekends are sacred. I try to make as many evenings as possible sacred as well. And uh, yeah, to be present with the ones you love. There's nothing sadder than, you know, being so consumed by your work that you can't actually enjoy yeah, the wonderful, you know, lives that we, we have and the people around you. So, Thank you so much, Freddie. We are sadly at our wrap-up questions. I feel like there, there will definitely be a second round of the new uh, pre-IPO. But until then, a few final questions. In one sentence, what does the future hold for Patch? So the future for Patch is doing everything we can to put as much opportunity onto as many high streets and into the hands of as many people and as many communities as we can. And really, it's about the speed and the quality with which we can do that. And at the end of your career, what would you like to be remembered for? I like to be remembered as someone who did what they said they would do. And I hope that that involves having put people first. And we've talked about all your board advisors who I'm sure double up as mentors. But if you could be mentored by one person dead or alive, who would it be? It's impossible to answer that question because my mentor group has and will always be a fragmentation. I have this concept of a virtual mentor, which is something that another founder, Toby Mather, wrote about, which I think he lifted from somewhere else. And there are five or six people who sit in my head and then talk to me every day, as insane as that sounds, because they, <laughs> they, they provide me with different perspectives on different things. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to break your question and give you the mix. In no particular order, Andy Grove, who wrote High Output Management, it's the nerdiest possible book, but I learned a lot from that. I think Reid Hoffman seems pretty amazing. I have no idea if, if mentorship is the right role here. I mean, this whole question is hyper-personal, so I think it's very easy to kind of get carried away with big names. I think you just need people who are around you who trust you. But I just think the way that Kate Bingham approached the vaccine development was complete badass. And like, she's the yeah, person I want to be so when I grow true. up. Yeah, so true. I, I think there's a lot in sports. So I watch a lot of F1. I have really got into like everything about Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> both as a, a sportsman, but, but you know, what he injures and what he, what he does off the track. I mean, that, I've just really read a lot about that and been very, very, really inspired. I always thought that um, there's something very, very cool about Serena Williams, like really cool. Yeah. And and, and, and I would love, I, I'm a big football fan. I'm not sure there are many footballers who kind of stand out as, as, as endearing necessarily, but she seems pretty cool. Love it. Thank you, Freddie. And finally, 
what is the last piece of advice, career or life advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, from a founder perspective, like it's a job, like it has this sort of semi-mythical status. It's not helpful. Like it's either a fit or it's not a fit. Just don't force it. So I know this is a bit vanilla, but honestly, just be yourself. I think I spent 10 years trying to figure out what that means. And I only really, around the time I turned 30, I got married, I bought a flat. And for some reason, I think of those three, I think probably getting married was the main one. I just stopped caring what other people think about. And that sense of freedom, that break from the sort of pressure of the doom scrolling of LinkedIn is probably the most impactful thing that has ever happened to me professionally, because I no longer cared about judging myself against other people. Now I've found a new set of people to do it against, which is kind of founders and other founders and, and fundraisers. So it's difficult to get rid of completely. But just be yourself. Don't try to try and prove that you are this or that. Uh, and I think the more that we can try to escape external benchmarks, see external people and inspiration uh, as inspiration, not, not as competition. Amazing. What a great place to end it. Freddie, amazing advice. Thank you for sharing your story. And we wish you all the very best with Batch. And yeah, looking forward to seeing all you get up to in the, the years ahead. I think it's going to be a very exciting journey. So uh, thank you for being a 14 event today. Thank you, James. And, and look, big thank you for, for what you do, the voices that you bring onto this podcast, the way that you handle yourself. I've been really, really impressed since we first met. And I, and I know that it really comes from a very genuine place. And for those people who perhaps are listening who haven't met you, I just want them to know as much as, as I believe that, that you're someone who really cares about making a difference. And that's not something you see all the time every day. So yeah, big, big thanks to you for, for what you do. That is so kind. Thank you, Freddie. Looking forward to catching up in person soon as well. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks, James. I've admired Freddie for a while and I've loved seeing Patch evolve from a concept to a super well-funded early stage startup with great product market fit. I love how he thinks about the future of work and at 3Patch, Freddie really wants to create a hotbed of activity that can showcase local talent, bring people together to combat loneliness and help rejuvenate the high street. An important and brilliant combination. I have no doubt that before too long, Patch will be popping up on a high street near you. So make sure you keep your eyes peeled and check out Patch's website to learn more. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd love to hear what your main takeaways were from it. So if there's anything that you would like to share or if you've got any questions you'd like to ask our remaining early stage founders in this feature series, please feel free to drop us a message at info at jbmc.co.uk. And before I let you go, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button, leave us a review or share this with your friends. We really, really appreciate the support and it really does make a difference. Thanks again and I'll see you soon.